Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Excellent. Well, great to be here. Um, interesting conversation with Al earlier. I said to him, well, what's the, what's the one thing you'd like to see out of this morning? And he said, well, you know, I'd really like to ignite the apostolic imagination. Oh, and I'd like to see this happen. And I'd like to see that happen. <laughs> there is the apostolic imagination in operation. If my wife were here, she would say, you can only have one thing. So uh, hopefully between Billy and I, we might be able to uh, ignite some apostolic emotion, uh, emotion as well, and some motion. Come on, Freudian slips all around. So we're gonna. Uh, I'm gonna. F- I'm flowing together some quite complex material uh, this morning, but I'm gonna make it very simple, and um, and we're gonna look at this whole idea that um, movements are continually moving from the known and towards the unknown. That's the very, na- and that the whole nature of life and growth involves that movement to the, to the unknown. And in a sense, our, uh, uh, if we believe in lifelong learning, uh, our known is continually bigger. But the nature of the unknown is that the more we know, the bigger the unknown gets. <laughs> the more you realize how little we know. And so constantly, we've got to be comfortable in pushing into things that we have never experienced things that we do not know, things that are outside of where we are, and we cannot avoid that. Our political system is pushing us into that dimension. Uh, Our seasons of life push us into that dimension. Uh, Naturally, we are going to go that direction. And movements that refuse to push beyond that which they know into the unknown are on the the early stages of the death process. Which, of course, that would be a very unknown for them as well. So, um, so I want to explore a little of the psychology behind uh, growing movements. Now, if we look at the emergence of the early church, um, you know, we see this incredible act. You know, Jesus dies, uh, you know, he's crucified, dead, buried, raised again. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes dynamically at Pentecost. And we see this incredible encounter of the Spirit. It's at Passover. You've got dispersed Jews from different language groups, traveled from a vast area. The Spirit comes down. Peter stands up. Uh, It all happens. They get zapped. And then after Pentecost, they go back into their areas. And the the best research says, well, between, between Pentecost and the emergence of the first gospel, which is between anything between... 15, really it's 30 years, um, you know, we had a, a one or two epistles before that, uh, but that whole process before the, the first gospel emerged, Mark, which was probably com- compiled by Mark from a heavy influence of Peter, uh, interviews with Peter, but also was compiling, he wasn't just sitting there zapped by the spirit, oh, I think I'll make up the story, but you know, basically he'd interviewed Peter, he'd interviewed others, he'd been present, but he was also compiling a pre-existing narrative so from the moment Pentecost happened the the apostles were out going to all the places that were dispersed and sadly Luke didn't write about that which is very frustrating that's something that we don't know but what we do know is that there was an apostolic curriculum well in place before the first gospel was written 
It's kind of like the 30 years, isn't it? The 30 years the church has been going here. It's a 30-year gap. And in that place, the disciples were going from place to place. They were telling the stories of Jesus, and they were recounting the teachings of Jesus. It was an oral tradition, so it was repeated. The stories were told, and they kind of developed as they were told and retold and retold. And then when the gospel writers came to write them down... Uh, that's, that's what they recorded. They recorded what theologians call the Jesus tradition. And so Paul, when he says, you know, I'm just doing the stuff that was handed down to me. I was, you know, I was handed down. He reads a little bit of liturgy. And he says, these were the traditions that were handed down to me. Because when Paul gets zapped, around about AD 32, he goes up uh, to Jerusalem. He meets Peter and Peter gives him the lowdown. Peter gives him the Jesus tradition that was already being laid. It's all right from the beginning. They were laying apostolic foundations in the churches, the kerygma, the essential formula of the gospel that we see in the gospels, which is obviously written after Acts, or telling the story before. So the kerygma that you see in the gospels was pre-existent. It already in operation because the gospels were written to tell the story of what had already happened. The gospels were when the, by the time the gospels were written, the Pauline churches were all established. All established. So they're written into that context. So although the gospels tell the, the first story, they are speaking into the pre-existent churches and saying this is your message. And so Paul, again we've got some unknowns here. Somewhere between AD and 32 and 42, we're told he you know, after he's had his zap and he's been sort of put on the straight and narrow by Peter, he clears off into Arabia. So you've got 10 years there, which we don't know what's going on. Uh, Eckhard Schnabel in his New Testament has researched exactly where Arabia is, and he's gone through every reference and every archaeological reference that exists to kind of find out what might have happened there. And there's very early evidence of Christian community, second century, admittedly, uh, but there's evidence of Christian communities founded all along. So Paul straight away went and did an apostolic work. Even while he was working out his gospel, he was operating as an apostle. Uh, to, but it must have been, otherwise Barnabas wouldn't have picked him up later and said, Crikey, you'd be doing a great job in Arabia, we need you in Antioch. Because that's what he did. He didn't pull some sort of, you know, oh, I've been, I've been chilling out in Arabia for 10 years and, you know, I'm no use to man. You know, he, you know, Paul was like full on and Barnabas thinking, we need you in Antioch. Later on, they might have regretted that decision. But, uh, you know, we need you in Antioch. Uh, and so we see this 10-year going on there, this 10-year foundation laying. And then we see Paul's ministry that we know about, because there's lots of things that we don't know about. It's frustrating also, we don't know what Thomas did, we don't really know much about what Peter did, we know we, but they were all doing shed loads of stuff, because history reveals later on that there were loads of other churches and other things planted. We don't know, <laughs> we don't know what, we, all we know is what Luke decided to tell us. He, he did back the winner, Paul, which is not a bad thing. Um, so there's things we don't know about that early Christian movement, but what we do know is mainly Paul's stuff. You know, 42, 42 to 62 or 66, depending when he dies. Uh, Schnabel reckons uh, Paul actually was released from prison when he calls 
uh, when he calls on Mark, bring my cloak, bring my this, bring my that, he thinks it's because he was about to get released and go on another apostolic journey rather than he was looking to die. He thinks he got to Spain, then was rearrested and killed in 66. Um, others think that the whole lot of them died uh, in, in 62 uh, in, in the persecution. So James, who was leading the church uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and um, Peter uh, and Paul all martyred at the same time in, in 62. So what happens after that? Incredible, isn't it? I mean, you, you knocked your entire senior leadership out. And uh, testament to Paul's work, isn't it, that there's still a phenomenal succession and phenomenal growth that accelerated after that period. So we see this dynamic emergence going on. You know, Paul is not this kind of, you know, static doctrinaire kind of, you know, we've got to forget, what we've got to understand is you know, being an evangelical is not a bad thing, but we've got to realize that evangelicalism is a fairly modern invention. You know, it came out of the Enlightenment in the 1500s. So we've got to stop looking. Jesus and Paul were not evangelicals. They didn't have the dogma and the framework and the reference coming out of the rationalism and the Enlightenment into even evangelicalism. They didn't have that framework. It's not that there's anything wrong with being evangelical, but it's just we can't read ourselves back in that. We've got to see Paul as this second, you know, second temple Jewish leader, apostle, who is dynamically exploring. He is the archetypal um, bungee jumper into the unknown, shall we say. That's Paul. And so... There's something about um, leadership of movements, and as we look at this New Testament church, there's a phenomenal faith activation that's going on there, isn't it? The spirit, when you look through the book of Acts, um, you know, there's, there's key moments, and those key moments are always when the spirit outbreaks with power, and then the church almost moves on into another paradigm, into another realm of experience. You know, and always in that, the word of God goes out and people get saved. But it's almost as the spirit comes, there's this breakout of the word of God and then new paradigms, you know, Gentiles included, all sorts of surreal things going on that really mess with their minds. And they surely went into the unknown. No one really knew what would really happen when you start included in the Gentiles and when you start said circumcision wasn't required and you started met no one really knew what 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 would emerge what would really happen they were pushing into the unknown they were seeing God breaking out and that's that the book of Acts is not written just as a historical document to say well that was that the book of Acts is written to say this is the way it should be some writers are convinced um, Dunn for instance are convinced that Paul was dead by the by the time by the time Acts was written, they were all those four leaders were dead. And, and Luke doesn't record their deaths because he's not writing about the life of Paul. He's not writing about all oh, the history of Paul that he lived in and all this and it's sad he died. He's writing the story of the church then and for all ages. So he's recording this dynamic, moving, movemental growth dynamic. And we're left with Paul dynamically arrested, dynamically proclaiming the gospel because he's the archetype of the apostle for the future. So, so some would say that. Now, I don't know whether he was dead already or not, but it's an interesting thought. And so when we're walking the walk of faith and we're saying, 
Well, what is it for Ireland? What is it for the church in these days? Where are we going to go? The first thing we do is we build on what we have learned. Jesus, uh, Paul built on the Jesus tradition. He built on what had been handed to him. Secondly, he had absolute faith in his identity. I was reading one theologian who said, well, who did really Paul think he is? Was he primarily Jewish? Was he, you know, what, what did Paul think about himself? What was the real thing? You know, if you'd have said to Paul, who are you? What are you about? And, uh, and he, he studies all of his stuff on, you know, because he talks a lot about his Jewish, you know, I'm a Jew of Jews and I'm this and this. And, and, and he really said, well, those weren't the major things. If you go through all of Paul's writing, you see that there's two things that he's really confident about in who he is. And that's, firstly, I am in Christ. And secondly, I am an apostle. <laughs> I'm in Christ and I am an apostle. This is me. This is who I am. And uh, I think if we want to... Um, you know, I do think that the first, you know, that, that those that were closest to Jesus, I think, you know, my understanding of churches is really important and, and useful. Um, I, I, for me, I flow in a long line of tradition, you know, as a nonconformist. I, I see myself as a historical faith. I, I think what's happened throughout the ages is pretty interesting. But, but what's of primary interest to me is what those closest to Jesus did and those that were closest to those that were closest to Jesus did. So probably the first couple of centuries up to Constantine are the most useful. And then following that, the other history is useful as well. But, but so we are, our identity is in Christ and we are apostolic. That's, that's the framework that we've been given. And what happens is... Um, you know, the Celtic thing, the Peregrinati, the Holy Spirit comes, they wander off with the wild goose, and, and then you get these stories of monsters, don't you? It's like, you know, you know, we're, you know we're rowing, we're, we're navigating from Ireland, and we're rowing all the way to America, and in the middle we're having encounters with sea monsters, and, and we're going down the beach, and, and, and the, 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 all the creatures are all around our feet. What, what are those stories about? That those stories are kind of like archetypal stories. They're saying, look, when the Spirit comes and we're called and we go on the apostolic journey, we kind of go into the unknown. We get shipwrecked. We get on the shore and then the snake comes and bites us in the butt. You know, and all of that kind of stuff. We, we get to battle monsters. Because Paul had no idea where it was going and where it was ending. In his mind, they were, they were a, a Jewish sect, part of Second Temple Judaism. They weren't really looking to start a church or a movement. It wasn't until after AD 70, when Paul was long dead, that that kind of happened. He had no idea of where he was going at one level, even though he was confident that he was in Christ and that he was an apostle. And so we need to learn how to handle that if we're going to lead adequately in a society where there are so many unknowns, in a world which is full of unknowns. So, and the walk of faith is like that, isn't it? You know, we, we're leaving even though we don't know where we're going. We're sure and certain of something that we can't see. Uh, we, we're called to do unusual feats and uh, hope beyond rationality. And, uh, you know, even though my body is good as dead somehow... Uh, and also we're, we're, we're called to do things that, that can't be done or even shouldn't be done. 
in the eyes, if we're really pioneering, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Paul's contemporaries thought that what he was doing probably couldn't be done, but most certainly shouldn't be done. And, and that's the nature of pioneering. Once we put, when, if we want to push out, and we start to push out in the unknown, and we start to go and battle the archetypal monsters that, that, are, that are out there, uh, basically, that's the encounter that we will have. And, you know, we will be pushing into a new order, a new paradigms, at least new to us, bearing in mind there's nothing new under the sun. It's nice for us to think that we're doing something new every now and then, strokes our ego and makes us feel good. But generally speaking, usually quite a few other people have been there first. So humility is at the order of the day. So let's reflect a little bit just for a couple of minutes before we, we push on. Where are you and your community being challenged to faith or the unknown? Maybe you've come with someone, hopefully you're sitting close to them. Just have two or three minutes together. Where, where, where is the challenge? Where's the challenge to faith? Where's the challenge to step into the unknown? Where's the spirit leading you? To walk on, let me walk upon the waters. That, you know, I won't get into leading worship, it's not a good idea. Okay, let's do that now, just for three or four minutes. So we're talking about uh, the known and the unknown, how Paul has emerged, the, the challenge of faith. And, uh, you know, we live in a culture... I talked a little bit about the Enlightenment earlier. Uh, in a sense, Christianity created the Enlightenment, but we have this period around the 1500s, 1600s, when the emergence of modern science came, and that brought a massive change in, in the way humanity and society began to think. And uh, the emergence of science, the scientific method, brought this thing called abstraction. Now, before the Enlightenment, there was, all, there was a sense that everything was integrated. Mystery, the supernatural, all of these kind of things. Mythical, and the, these great mythical stories, these great Old Testament stories, you know, meaning, morality, and action, all of those things were integrated. And with, when the scientific method came into things, which was pretty good, we started to separate things off. We started to look at the human body and break it down into parts, which is not a bad idea, you know, because we start to understand the little parts. But we all know that if you develop medical techniques without a reference to meaning and without a reference to morality, you are in problems. Also what the Enlightenment did was began to bring a scientific method onto stories of faith that can't be explained by science or weren't intended to be. So I think we can be reasonably confident that the writer of Genesis never ever for one second had in their mind that someone would look at that and say, scientifically the earth was made in seven days. Now it may have been made in seven days or seven time periods. I'm not commenting on that. Neither was the writer of Genesis. Uh, if we want to find any clue as to how the earth was made, we need to go to, to geology and science and not to scripture because it's not about that. The beginning of Genesis is a story about who, who is God in relation to other gods. 
Who is humanity in relationship to God and one another? It's about meaning, morality, and action. That's what it's about. Because what happened is the scientific method came in to our theology and they started to demythologize, which means they reduce, they take the supernatural out. So for the first, you know, now even what evangelicals did, they fought like mad against this process and kept the supernatural in the New Testament in theory. But, but, but all other forms of the mystical or the supernatural are out of bounds. And so we developed a, a faith that is full of abstractions and not really holistic in terms of the whole of life. And now in culture, we're just trying to break back bit, a bit more into a kingdom mindset and understand some of this stuff. And it's interesting that neuroscientists have observed that... Um, you know, certain things stimulate the brain in different ways. And we have these two hemispheres. We have the left brain and the right brain. And as they've researched and researched and researched, they've basically come to the conclusion that the left brain is, can be the tyrannical beast that rules the right brain. But that basically, left brain thinking, which I think is more to do with the known, so left brain thinking is all about when territory is explored, it gets activated, it processes words, it's linear thinking, it's detail, it's fine motor action, it's strategy, it's all of that kind of stuff. It's the forensic thing, it pins it down, it defines the known, it makes our world safe. And the left side of our brain is fire, 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 when, when when what, is, what should be done and, and what, you know, what's appropriate is no longer in question. So all the time we are in complete and utter certainty and we know exactly what to do and uh, you know, we're doing a detailed process. You know, we've got the flat pack furniture and we know exactly what to do because the instructions are so brilliant. You know, the, the, the left brain comes in and is doing that process stuff. And the left brain does tend to dominate and does tend to control. And I think most of what we've seen within religion and tradition is the domination of this left brain way of thinking. But what happens is when the unknown breaks in, when the unexplored comes into our lives, when the things that can't be explained by dogma and intellectual exploration come into place, we have to search for stories and myths and patterns and things that don't really explain. You know, when my daughter's got a brain tumor, somehow my theology of suffering and whatever, you know, I, I could give you the rational articulation, but I had to find something else to, to feel, yeah, it's well with my soul. And my left brain was not going to give that to me. And if we're looking to engage with the prophetic environment as movements and leaders, our left brains are not going to be the only answer. When we go what we want to do, let's get left brain about it. You know, I don't want someone getting right brain on my operation. You know? But basically, when we come into the unknown, we've got image processing. We've got holistic thinking, pattern recognition, gross motor action, <laughs> dreams, imagination. 
where we're kind of like trying to really explain what we're trying to explain, but we can't really explain it. So we tell a story or we'll, we'll weep or we'll paint a picture or we'll describe it in some other way. We'll do a film. Uh, that's where the right brain comes in. And so if we're going to break into the faith dimension, we're going to have to see these kind of dimensions in operation. But our brain also plays tricks on us when we talk about the unknown, because then we have to face our fears. And there is this little part of our brain that, that neuroscientists have found called the amygdala. And uh, that's the fight, flight, freeze uh, scenario. I was walking around the lake, animals have got it, it's primeval, uh, it's, it's programmed into us. And um, I was walking around the lake with my dog and this big snake came across the path and at the moment it saw the dog, it just went, played dead. Because the dog was like, couldn't care whether it was a snake, a swan or anything, so, you know, it's a thick as two short planks. So I said to the dog, come on back here, we step back, step back, back, four steps back, poof, off like a shot. <laughs> Completely, it was the freeze mode. And that's what happens when, often when, we are, when there's extreme trauma, when we experience things in our life, um, the, the amygdala clicks in. It basically overrides all rationality and everything else, and it takes control, instinct, in a, in a fraction of a second. And this fight, flight, freeze dimension operates. Now, it's useful for preservation. But if we've been traumatized or we've been through extreme pain, we've got to learn to stand that down. Otherwise, we are still in that mode and we're not going to be able to lead our communities. So if you've been through trauma in your life with your leadership, you're going to need to find how to stand that down. You know, I was in fight mode after Chloe's experience for some while and it wasn't, it wasn't, it took a few months for me to realize that was what was going on with me and that's why I was so blooming awkward to be with. Because I, I was still fighting. I was still in the trauma of the whole scenario. And if you as a leader have been through pain or trauma over a long time, or you've been hurt and whatever, you've got to find a way of standing this down and getting to the place where you've got healthy fear. And healthy fear is never like the amygdala response. It's, it's never fight, flight, or freeze. It's never that. Um, but nevertheless, I think sometimes we get it wrong when we start we're all the time trying to cast fear out of people. You know, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, fear is that primeval instinct that makes you think, I'm going to pick up this chainsaw now. I need to be afraid of this, otherwise I'm going to cut my leg off. You know, fear is the thing that makes you think, before I step in the road, I'm going to check whether something's coming. You know, fear is the thing that makes you think, you know, primordially, is, is this thing going to eat me or not? You know, fear is a very useful leadership technique to understand so that we can evaluate where we're stepping and what we're going. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the key with fear is that it shouldn't be in front of us where it's holding us back. We need to keep our fear behind us where it's driving us on. You know, all fear, what if I step in this, we go in faith, what could go wrong? Oh, we haven't got the money, oh, we haven't got this, oh, people are going to, you know, fear's in front of you. Get your fear behind you. If we don't step into what God's got and we don't move on, we are toast. 
I don't want to be a relic <laughs> behind me, driving me usefully. No, oh, everything's fine. It is well with my soul, which of course it is. But, you know, it is, it is well with my soul, but my fear's still behind me. It's not that well I'm headed. <laughs> because, you know, I want to push into all that God has got for me. And so we've got to understand a little bit about the way our brains operate, the left, the left and the right learn to move into each one, understand what's required at certain times, and deal with this fear issue, understanding that a certain amount of fear is useful because it's instinctive, and generally speaking, security is something we learn, it's socialized. Fear isn't socialized, it's there instinctively. We've just got to learn to handle it. So, useful for us as leaders because so many of us as leaders, we're operating out of fear or out of what might go wrong, whereas we've got to put that behind us and learn to step forward into the unknown. Now, what is the known, first of all? Well, the known is our skills. You know, once, but when we can acquire new skills. Once I didn't know how to use a chainsaw, now I do. Not quite sure I know how to chop down a really big tree, though that's quite dangerous. I don't think, you know, I need another course for that one. I can do little ones. So, the known is our skills. What we know is our culture, that of our culture, of course, of which we are aware. Um, probably a fair proportion of our culture we are unaware of because we've grown up in it, we've learned, we breathe the air. We, because we breathe the air, we don't really know our culture fully. But what we know of our culture is our, is our known, our models of church life, our patterns, that's, that's what we know. Those are the things we know. They're very useful. We know those things. Our science, our beliefs, our principles. And then that, that known is really important. What we know about healing and prayer and God answering prayer and scripture and who I am in Christ and the way God moves. Those things are really important. Sometimes those things get challenged and we'll deal with that later on. But that's the known. That's the culture. And hopefully our known is continually growing. And so as movements, you know, we, we, we have an apostolic strategy, whatever that means. You know, we, we've got plans, you know, and, we are, and, you know, and if we fully explored everything we know, we would be a lot bigger, wouldn't we? If you, if you think of everything that you know as leaders as a church, if you could actually implement all of that stuff, just think how much bigger you would be as a person and as a community. So there's a lot still to be explored in the things that we know. But you know what? We would still be incomplete. There's still stuff to push out into. You know, I'm 60 this year. I'm learning more now than I've ever learned in my whole life. And I think I'm probably a lot smarter than I was 30 years ago, even though I'm creaking in a, in a lot of different areas. But that's what lifelong learning is all about. It's keeping the brain going and you know, our brains are regenerating, they're finding out. You know, even though we might be losing a bit, we're gaining a bit as well. And if you don't use it, you lose it. So, you know, this is the journey that we are on. So we've got to be pushing into the unknown. And what we've got to realize is that ideas, cultures, models, dreams, they stop producing like they used to and they even become dictators. So the thing, the thing that launched you as a community or launched you as a church or the idea, the cultural idea that launched this new type of music or type of art or whatever, uh, over time dies off and becomes a dictator. 
you know, organ music, choir music, you know, new music. You can see the emergence and change of cultures over time. If your church model works now, uh, trust me, in five years' time, it will look different. And it might even become a date, uh, uh, might even become a dictator. Suddenly you start serving the structure. That's how institutionalism that Billy was talking about, that's how it works. So we need mythical stories now. You know, the, you know, I was telling Billy, you know, these stories of, you know, the king that was, was a lively king, but then he gets old and he dies and he loses his edge in his old age and the kingdom begins to get smaller and smaller and shrink and becomes oppressive and then the young son raises up, but the old king wants to kill him, but the young son has to go out and slay the dragon or do the magic thing and bring the new thing back to the kingdom. What, what are those mythological stories about? They're about what happens in every culture, over every time. And in a sense, Jesus is one of those heroes, isn't he? He's a mythical hero, but historical figure, and it actually happened. Because myths aren't things that didn't happen. They're they're stories with a deeper meaning. Uh, That's what they are. They may or may not have happened. But Jesus happened, but he he died, rose again, went into the wilderness, dealt with the devil, brought back the new life became the prince of peace, renews the kingdom. It's, the, it's that kind of dimension. And so when, when, our, when our churches and our movements get to this place where the old thing is dying and the old leaders are losing, you know, I had to recognize I wasn't dying. I was still full of vision and energy, but, but my, light, my, my, my passion, my edge, my apostolic edge for fusion was beginning to wane a little and, and Rich was... What am I going to give the next 20 years of my life to? And my thing was, fusion, that's where you're going, so I'm going to get out the way, and we're going to do a good succession here. Because it's vitally important, because we, we have this cycle that's required to, to keep stuff alive. And if we don't do that, the things that started, you know, I'm sure every rule in, in every institutional rule book was brought in for a good reason. And then the sons and daughters are really ruining the day that they were stuck with this wretched thing <laughs> because we need that cycle of change. So there's another thing. So, so we've got this known unknown thing. We've got this left brain, right brain going on, this, this need to step into the unknown and, and risk a little bit. We don't know what's going to happen. Oh, we haven't got the money. We don't know where we're going. Yeah, well, we're in the right place then. Come on, baby, let's go. Now, let's have some left brain behind us, you know, with, with three options. Fail, we'll do this. Succeed, we'll do this. Uh, if we don't know what success is, mm, I don't know what we're going to do then. But you've got some proper thinking going on behind, really important. Any community uh, or organization or movement will have this. And this is the anomaly <laughs> and the anomaly are bugs in the system. Um, if we want to push into the unknown and move forward, we're going to have to listen to the anomalies. Often the anomalies are the things that are awaking us to something that's not quite right or something that we need to be thinking about to move forward. So if you've got... Um, ongoing cycles of relational breakdown within your leadership and within your church with people leaving, and it's over three or four years. You may have rationalized that, but that's an anomaly, isn't it? 
If you've got people over periods of time that keep saying, I need something more contemplative, I'm going to the cathedral, that's an anomaly. If, if the big church that's planted in the community sucks everybody out of the small churches and they die off and then communities haven't got any witness in them, that's an anomaly. Um, and as visionaries, we don't like anomalies. I can remember as a young leader, you know, people coming with, um, you know, criticisms or stuff and, and me being able to articulate really clearly why they were wrong. You know, because I'm the visionary leader, you know, and I can convince anybody of anything, you know. But, th but there's an anomaly there. Why is it that these people aren't feeling loved or they're not fearing heard? And so, as leaders, I would encourage you to listen to your anomalies. And uh, if you feel like you are an anomaly, <laughs> it might be that God's leading you to a place of change. But it also means it might be that you've got a message, you've got something to input into the other thing. And I believe these anomalies are an opportunity to avoid an unseen precipice or an opp opportunity to rethink a call to the unknown. And so let's ask, our, let's ask some questions. Really, hard, and, and it's, you know, when, in my experience, when, when, um, when I was leading Revelation Church, within the years of our greatest growth, when we were more or less wiping everything before us, we've seen people say we're going into the community, we're growing, hundreds of young people on national television, all sorts of stuff were happening for us. Um, but we had some fairly beastly anomalies in the mix, um, which I failed to recognize and others failed to recognize, and that they arose to bite us on the backside ever so severely around the turn of the millennium, and we've learned lessons on that. So, just a little reflection for a couple of minutes. And you might not be able to fulfill this now. Um, just, just take a couple of minutes. What are the anomalies that are breaking into your systems, the reoccurring breakdowns, the unexpected failures? Let's have just three minutes on that in groups. You might need to go and reflect on this later. Hopefully, it'll bring a leadership agenda for you. Let's do this, and then we'll push into the last section. Off we go. Painful. This is painful, this bit. Painful honesty. Nobody get hurt if you hear an anomaly that affects you. Nobody get defensive. Let's, let's ask God. Very good. And of course, you know, anomalies take different shapes of forms. Can't you? you might be you're expecting someone to be ill or to, to die and they get healed. Oh, you might be expecting someone to get healed and they, they die. You know, <laughs> anomalies work both ways round and they cause us to reevaluate our theology, our approach to life, our understanding of the future. Uh, they're all anomalies. And uh, if we fail to address our anomalies successfully, pastorally and otherwise as leaders, uh, it will cause us severe problems. Um, 
So what is the unknown? Well, firstly, the unknown is potential. You know, it's new birth, it's promised land, it's new learning, it's the unexplored. And, you know, it's Paul, isn't it? I'm going to Spain <laughs> all the time. Spain is, well, I want to go, I want to get to Spain. I'm in Rome, I want to go to Spain. There's this unknown exploration dimension. And so there's something brilliant about the unknown. There's something really exciting about the unknown. There's something about the unknown that brings us to life. You may have grown up in a culture uh, where you're afraid of the unknown. I did a little, little bit of group work with somebody, and he had this revelation that he was afraid of the known. <laughs> he was actually more comfortable with the unknown, and he was really afraid of the known, and that caused a whole realignment of his thinking and understanding of himself. But what is the unknown? It's potential. Uh, it's also the land of giants and dra dragons. It's it's, it's uh, Goliath, isn't it? <laughs> it's the unknown. And uh, it's danger. It's the pain as yet unexperienced. It's, it's you know, at one level the unknown is wonderful and brilliant, but it's also frightening and dangerous because all sorts of things could go wrong and do go wrong. And that's the very nature of, of pushing into the unknown. That's why we've got to deal with our fears and uh, understand the whole journey of life. And the unknown is, is it's the water that we've got to learn to walk on. It's the 5,000 that we've got to learn to feed. It's the water we, we're called to turn into wine. It's the wilderness temptations. It's the hope. It's the future. That's, that's what the, the unknown is. is we're called, it's, it's the gospel ultimately, isn't it? It's the Genesis calling. Go forth, multiply, fill the earth. Uh, you know, that, that's what it is. You're going into the unknown here. Um, it's, it's the calling of the kingdom. You know, don't tote too much with you. Go out two by two and have a crack. <laughs> it, it is, it, it, that, that's what the unknown in, in essence is about. And there's something in the unknown that's really important and powerful that we need. And when we look at the New Testament, uh, there was a whole missional unknown. Um, you know, one thing you were sure of, of the New Testament church is that it wasn't a house church. Well, sometimes it was. But mostly it wasn't, or, well, mostly maybe it was. Actually, we're not really sure. Um, but the best historical research shows you maybe six, seven, six, seven models that were, to be fair, mainly based around the household. You've got the temple courts, the house-to-house, -house, Jerusalem. You've got that Jerusalem model. You know, quite large, gathering in the temple courts daily, meeting house-to-house. -house. You kind of got the mixture of the two. You've got the Philippi church planting model where you've got a house of prayer. It's a small home that was uh, displaced Jews, didn't have their own building, not many of them gathering in a home. It's a house of prayer. You've got the Greco-Roman societies, the mystery societies. You know, that's where, uh, and they met around the meal table. This is where some of the rumors about you know, immorality and some of the problems about you know, rich people eating all the food before the poor came because there were, you know, there were slave societies, there were societies for virtually every religion, there were civic societies, there were all kinds of societies and the church gathered around its expression as one of those societies that were very much part of the culture. And because dining the table was part of that, and that's where a lot of the 1 Corinthians 11 problems come. The lesson from that is we can go with the culture, which is great 
missiologically, which Paul did, but it will create problems for you <laughs> that you will have to correct and adjust because we can't ever fully quite go with the culture. So we go with this um, Greco-Roman society, we kind of the church meeting around the households, around meals, all of that dimension, but then we've got the rich-poor dimension, you know, and obviously the uniqueness of the Christian societies because they had slaves and women in leadership. Woo! Come on, baby! That's challenging the culture. But, but you know, it causes problems as well as blessings. That's the unknown, isn't it? We don't know what kind of problem we're going to do, what we're going to find when we plant a church in a nightclub. You know, but when you've got drug dealing going on at your worship meeting, you realize that's a problem that you didn't quite anticipate. You know, we start, when we started 24-7, we had a prayer room in the building. We had club nights going in the other room. We were going in there. You've got Buddhists meditating in there, having encounters with Jesus, and a homeless person sleeping in the corner. Hmm. I didn't anticipate that. We had people paying 20 quid for the club night and spending the whole evening in the prayer room. You know, child protection. You know, okay. So that's what happens when we go in the culture. You've got evidence of larger synagogues present in some key Roman cities which became in the second century settings for church meetings. In the second century, you've actually got evidence of... Uh, Jewish communities and early churches hiring school halls. Ha! Nothing new under the song. That's in Schnabel's book, very, very interesting. Uh, you've got uh, households of rich converts, Gaius, several hundred fitting in his house. Interesting model. Pro probably we've had one of those over the years. The Moravians, kind of, you know, Count von Zinzendorf, also known as Gaius, perhaps. Um, You've got apartment churches in Rome. You know, by the time Paul rocked up at Rome, Rome was already established and operational. We don't know who planted it. Probably Junia or our female apostle or Andronicus. Um, but very, very interesting. But basically apartment churches. And there's plenty of research around the nature of these apartments. Very, very small. Potentially they could have been knocked into, into one to make a larger worshipping space. Very, very primitive. But they would have been very, very small units. Sometimes you had trade on the ground floor working there and this you could easily see how Paul probably in the day because he spent most of his day obviously working in his trade he wasn't sort of full-time as such you know he probably spent most of his day with the tradesmen with all of this kind of stuff going on around the top so you had a very interesting missional dynamic in Rome and then you've got Tyrannus which kind of is the other thing in an everyday meeting for a big lecture to have a bit of a bit of a debate you know that's kind of the that was a, a Greek phenomenon you know they had mobile they, 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 they had lots of lots of itinerant Greek philosophers that were going around place to place who were giving it the big one you know the Jordan Petersons of their day filling the O2 all of that kind of stuff Paul comes in and one of as one of them and and but slightly different I'm not like those teachers who speak with this and this uh, I'm not prepared to take any money from any of you why did he say that because you had all these other speakers that were going around, taking a shed load of money, making the money. They were these, you know, full-time communicators, philosophers. Paul comes in, does, does Tyrannus. He said, well, I'm not like that. I'm like this. And I'm not going to take a penny from any of you to show you that I'm not like that. That's, again, flowing with the culture, but against the culture. But, boy, we've got some models, haven't we? And then after AD 70, all the bets were off. Um, but basically, the temple's destroyed, Second Temple Judaism destroyed, no room for any sects now, or all of the sects were destroyed, all that was left was Pharisaical um, 
strand of Judaism which became more and more exclusive and so then the church and Judaism was pushed further and further and further and further apart. But at least for the next 150 years they were still overlapping. So there's lots of evidence of you know, the, the Christian leaders saying, look, you, these churches are too Jewish and, 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 and the synagogue leaders saying, these synagogues are too Christian. And James Dunn said he feels that the, the, the second generation leaders made a mistake in separating the two off because he said really what you had was like you've got now. You had churches, you had synagogues, and you had like Jews for Jesus in the middle. You had a messianic movement. And, and, and basically between them, the, the, the church and the, the Jews killed that middle space. And we've never found it since. So, so there's a, perhaps a lesson to learn there. You know, when we're in the unknown, what do we do? We're reaching these people. How do we integrate them into our church? We've got to be very careful that we don't create something that five, ten years, 400 years down the line is going to be a problem. But that's exciting, though, isn't it? <laughs> we're going into the unknown. Pour it down. <laughs> what are we going to do? Where are we going to meet? We don't know where we're going to meet. <laughs> oh, Come on, that's great. Let's go and do something. Let's, exper let's experiment. Let's go on this journey. And let's, and let's go with the flow and allow our churches to be shaped by the adventure into the unknown and not by the certainties of the past. Because the New Testament church very quickly became Jew and Gentile planted by different people. It was viral. Rome, perhaps, as I've said, Adronicus and Junior. It was well in place by the time Paul visited. Phoebe led the delivery of Paul's letters to the church, which I love that. You know, basically, Paul wrote the letter. It would have fully trained and empowered Phoebe. She was the one that took it to the church, which means she had the authority to read the letter, to teach the letter, and to explain the letter. So Paul basically gave his seminal highest work, the definition of his ministry to that point, and he trained Phoebe in it, gave it to her, and she went and delivered it to the Roman church. You can read into that whatever you like. Um, and I love the, the, mo the mobility of the apostolic teams. Um, very great, this uh, Schnabel, who's very anal, he is very left brain. this uh, theologian. I like James Dunn a bit more. He's much more right brain, a bit more creative. But uh, he's very left brain. So he basically analyzed and worked out that uh, Paul traveled uh, 15,500 miles, 8,700 of which would be by land, which would have been principally on foot. Um, which means Alexander the Great, with all his chariots, he only managed 19,900 miles <laughs> with all his chariots. So that shows you how movemental and dynamic and on the move Paul was. You know, this great scholar who has become the symbol of intransigence in some people's thinking was really this dynamic, movemental, moving into the unknown, not knowing what he's going to encounter in different cities, not knowing whether he was going to get stoned, thrown out, you know, stoned, hit with bricks, not, you know, drugged up. You know, he doesn't know whether he's going to get attacked, whether he's going to get destroyed, whether he's going to get thrown out. He doesn't know whether the enemies have been there first. He doesn't know whether the church is going to be before him or, or against him. He doesn't know whether he's going to get killed, whether he's going to... He doesn't know any of those things. But, but so the, the greatest theologian, you know, people would say, well, you know, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Obviously, it's Jesus as Lord and Savior, but... Paul is one of the major influences, we have to say, because we've got mostly his writings. And, you know, 
That's the nature, nature of perhaps the, the, the archetypal apostle, if you like. But Jesus is the archetypal apostle. But there we go. Now, that's exciting, isn't it? But at the same time, it's incredibly challenging. It's, as Billy said, it's challenging us to a different mode of life as the church. Now, I'll finish here very quickly. Back to psychology again. You know, psychology teaches us that for human beings to learn, we need novelty. Because basically, learning comes out of curiosity. So if we don't have any novelty, and if our, if you, and our curiosity is not being ignited, basically we will become very boring people. Why do marriages die off? Because there's no novelty, no fresh passion, and very little curiosity about each other and about the future and what we might do together. And it's the same within an institution. We need novelty. We need the unknown. Bad, we need it. And, uh, and the unknown is made bearable by our known story. So we go into the unknown. Somebody dies. We have something painful. We have pain that we are, we, we have gone into the unknown. Our faith framework and our life framework and our science and our expectations and our upbringing did not prepare us for this experience of the unknown. We have two options at that stage. Either our story, our narrative, our known is flexible enough to imbibe what we're experiencing and then it becomes different. Oh, I've now got healing added to my expectation of sickness. Or I've now got, you know, death um, added to my anticipation of life. Uh, or I've now got, you know, whatever it is. But, but that comes in. And where it goes wrong is where our stories are inflexible. So if going back to the Enlightenment again, if we have an inflexible dogma... Uh, or an immature faith that says, well, it's this and it's this and it's this and it's that, then what happens? We go, the, the unknown comes into our life, it destroys our current belief system, and then we become an atheist, or we become a Buddhist, or we become a hedonist, or we become a whatever, because this, what we had was not rigorous enough to see us through. And that's, that's the... We've got to teach, when we teach the known, we've got to teach it in a way that prepares people to deal with the anomaly. You know, to people saying to me, how can you sing God is good? You know, with what you're experiencing. Well, what's what I'm experiencing? Got anything? It's got nothing to do whatsoever with the goodness of God, in my opinion. God is good life is somewhat broken in this world is you know in a mess so but it's all to do with your known and as churches uh, if our known is and not flexible enough and our doctrine is not flexible enough we're not you know if we're if we're into we all should know if if our systems start to break down when the unknown comes in we know that we're in ideology and not theology you know, ideology is this inflexible system that imposes itself on everybody else and makes everybody else wrong. That's not theology. That's not the faith. 
That's ideology. That's an idol. Now, theology is something that ebbs and flows with the flow. You know, it's Paul saying, we prophesy in part, we know it in part. It's paradox, isn't it? <laughs> Which is enough of that in the Bible to keep you going for, <laughs> for years and years. So, that's the key in going into the unknown, is having the flexible known. And th you, you know, you'll know people, won't you, that burned out, middle-aged, lost faith, had pain and experience, lost faith. You know, had, had a breakdown in church and went, went wrong for them. So they're now de-churched or unchurched or post. You know that. They had the wrong narrative of the known. Wasn't flexible enough to keep the journey going with the experience. And without the unknown, we're trapped. We, you know, um, you know we, we, we can't deal with tragedy appropriately. We can't understand anomaly. We can't adapt to change. We need the unknown desperately. But we have to hold the position uh, in order to to push through in all the stuff that God has got because when you push into the unknown there's all sorts of things you can't explain but you don't need to worry about it because you've got lots of patterns <laughs> someone will explain it later you know it's like in the New Testament the Holy Spirit comes oh maybe this is that that the prophets thought oh. <laughs> you know they're trying to articulate something that's both known and unknown and that's the nature of the faith that's the nature of apostolic Christianity. Well, Christianity full stop. Not time for reflections. So we can explore the options there. Billy's given us some of those, but there's a shed load, uh, uh, which means rather a lot in my language. Um, you all sorts of expressions, old and new and whatever, that we can, we can think of. Because what we've got to understand is, you know, for the first, uh, up to Constantine, about third century, we basically have got the Pauline, Petrine, you know, pre-AD 70, post-AD 70, multiplication of the church, which really accelerates. Then you have the, 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 you, the, the Constantine gets saved, which was the worst thing that ever happened. It was the fall of the church. I mean, in a short time, they were quite relieved because it meant people weren't getting killed anymore and martyred to the same level. But then you've got this fall of the church and basically a slow corruption. It wasn't as radical as it was. So then you have the monastic movements come in and take over. Uh, really take over the renewal the, the, now the monasticism let's not idealize it you know eastern monasticism you know some good stuff there but pretty chaotic and dreadful in certain parts as well but some amazing things western monasticism a bit more organized but still at its low spots um, but pretty much created western society anyway uh, so but then then at the end of kind of monasticism when they were all destroyed by Henry VIII and all that business what you got then you got the reformation and then you got what Billy was talking about the local church which is a newfangled relatively new invention in terms of church history well we're still there what next I don't know let's have some fun finding out shall we that's why when people talk about new monasticism, we don't really know what we're talking about. You know, when Pete Gregg talks about apostomonasticism, we don't really know what we're talking about, but we're saying there's something in the apostolic, there's something in the early church, there's an energy there, there's something about that primeval Christian community for the first couple of centuries that we must not lose, but yet there's something in monasticism that was really part of what was happening in the world, and maybe the, monastic, you know, the monastics really were... The early Christians were the monastics. Paul was the monastics. They were the models. They were the radical models. So maybe there's something there. Well, we won't know until we have a go, will we? And we won't know whether we've succeeded until 50 to 100 years later when people look back and say, 
that was really good or that was, a, that, that was a really bad idea. You know, most of our theories now are based on things that happened 30 years ago. It's far too early to judge, but never mind. Okay, no perfect model of church. We'll forget that for now. Um, so I'll finish with this, and Al can do what he wants. I, I think I like this. Um, at the intersection between the unknown and known, real learning takes place. So if you want to learn, you, you're going right down that, right down the middle. You're on the edge between the known and the unknown, and you've got this interaction that's going on. And that's where you've got dynamic learning. And, and here our sense of meaning is heightened too. Because, you know, as we, we become acquainted with suffering or we become acquainted with paradox, uh, we go deeper into God uh, and things like that. And then the meaning is, in, is, is heightened. You know, and then this is the sweet spot between order and chaos where movements thrive. Most of those that are looking at movements say successful movements that don't blow out or destroy but keep going. They're, they're all, all the time, they're right on the edge between order and chaos. The moral of the story is don't tidy things up too much, but don't let them get too untidy. So we're on, the, we're on that line between order and chaos. And, and when that happens, things in the past that we believed and treasured that have become calcified by the ages suddenly get renewed and refreshed. And we get to get out there and slay Goliath and we become kings and we become rulers. That's the story. That's how it happens. Of course, when we become kings and become rulers, <laughs> we then get older and our ideas used to play. We have to be renewed again. We have to push in again because the cycle never stops uh, and, until we go to glory and uh, wherever that is and however that works out. But that's unknown as well, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of known and unknown, isn't it? We know what we've hoped for, but we don't really know what it'd be like because we haven't been there yet. But our time will come and how glorious and wonderful that will be. Let's pray just for a, a, a few seconds. Pray, Lord, that as we sit here right now and our brains are fizzing, uh, I pray that two things will happen. I pray, one, that three or four clear learning points will come into each of our minds. Three or four. Something really left brain. And at the same time that we will be left with a feeling, an emotion, an image that will really empower us to adventure and see your kingdom come and your will done in our lives. Four things, an image and a feeling. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.